Hello, everyone. I'm Pam Carroll. Welcome to this episode of Employment Matters. Employment Matters is a podcast series brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest and most prestigious network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms in the world. Today, I'm pleased to be joined by Shana French from Sherard Coos, James Kondopoulos from Roper Grell, and Jeff Palomar from Taylor McCaffrey. All of my friends here today are joining us from the great land above in Canada, as we say. So thank you. I want to thank you for joining us. Our expertise here today are going to share with you insight into the prevalence of the gig economy and gig workers in Canada. So welcome, everyone. Thanks, Pam. Thank you, Pam. Thanks, Pam. So one of the biggest questions that we need to delineate up front when we're considering conversation about gig workers is guidance for employers into how do they classify a gig worker versus a traditional employee? Shana? So we look at it really in Canada from three buckets. We have the traditional employment relationship, and then we have independent contractors, which a lot of gig workers would say they fall within the bucket of an independent contractor. But here in Canada, we have a third third category, which is the dependent contractors. So we're almost a hybrid of an independent contractor, but with the economic dependency of an employee. So when we look at what puts an individual worker into one of those three buckets, we're often looking at the autonomy a worker has over the, how, when they do their work, how they do their work, the ownership of tools in executing the work. And then when we're seeing the litigation coming in around the gig economy, a lot of attention is being paid to the regularity of the pay from the organization or the ability of the organization to control how the employee or the worker, sorry, executes that work, right? So mandatory checks or quality control. So those things all influence whether someone is going to be classified as a true independent contractor, that hybrid category of a dependent contractor, or the employee. It's that autonomy, recognizing that the further you move over with the less autonomy, the closer you're going to be to a characterization as an employee. So with that presentation on the spectrum of how one might classify the workers, what would you say is the prevalence of the gig economy. Is this a growing area? Pam, I think what, you, uh, what you're seeing is, is, a, is certainly a growth in that area. Um, an erosion of what has been traditional employment, um, certainly flexibility in, in work arrangements, in time, uh, in, in how people carry out their work. I think um, uh, principles uh, try to structure their affairs, to move away from the traditional employment setting, to move the workers as far away from the employment end of the spectrum as they can move those workers, and thus avoid the application of traditional workplace legislation, uh, employment standards legislation, human rights legislation, workers' compensation legislation. Um, Now, uh, we need to keep in mind that many of those bodies are alive to what is going on uh, with in- increasing frequency and um, are approaching their legislation in a very uh, liberal and purposive way when, when interpreting the requirements of the legislation and um, uh, are, are often approaching the analysis in a remedial fashion and giving workers um, 
traditional employment rights. Um, but but uh, there, there certainly is that trend towards the gig economy and that flexibility. And um, it, it's something we're watching quite keenly in Canada. I'm glad you mentioned that word flexibility, because I think that that's at the heart of the discussion, any discussion on the gig economy and gig workers. So being that you want to afford the worker tremendous flexibility, what are some of the related risks or downsides for this working arrangement, potentially for employers, Jeff? Well, from an employer or a business's perspective, the biggest risk of any in any situation really is uncertainty in terms of knowing what obligations you've got to the person. In some cases, it may be regulated by statute. In other cases, it may be regulated by common law. But if you don't know what you've got, you don't know what surprises you're going to have down the road. How many times have we seen circumstances where an employer hires someone on the basis of a salary, assuming that's all in, no overtime, and all of a sudden they're met with a big overtime claim afterwards? And you can see the same thing in the gig economy in the sense you hire someone expecting he or she is going to be an independent contractor or dependent contractor, not subject to employment standards, legislation, or other uh, requirements and met, you met with a claim afterwards, perhaps for unionization because they claim to be employees for purpose of labor legislation, perhaps for overtime because they claim to be employees for purpose of employment standards legislation. So surprise is the biggest concern and, and a need for certainty. Yeah. And, and no employer wants to be hit with surprises. So if we can any mitigate that um, in any way. Those are great points from Jeff. And when you talk about how the surprises can catch an employer, and the ones Jeff cited are the most common, the other are the a business. The other area would be in terms of confidentiality protections, intellectual property, especially when you're talking um, development of technology or utilizing technology, a business wants to ensure that there's protection. And in Canada, the presumption on intellectual property for an employee is vastly different than it is for a worker or a contractor, as in the business does not have the same level of protection when a third party or contractor is using their intellectual property as they would, or developing intellectual property, as they would when it's a traditional employment relationship. Similarly, when you're talking about restrictive covenants, it's going to depend. That's the non-solicitation, non-competition. So those surprises for employers can be pretty far-reaching when they're thinking that they are uh, protected, um, or sorry, businesses, when they think that they're protected and they're using contractors who have a far more diluted regime around what they can and cannot do with the information they've gained during that relationship or during performing that work. I want to do a bit of a deeper dive into a point um uh, raised by um, by Jeff specifically, and that was the issue of overtime. Imagine you have people working remotely off the traditional work site. Um, how do you control the amount of time being worked by those individuals? Now there are there are some some rules and conditions you can put in place to assist you in that respect. Imagine for hours of work requiring the employee to reach more the worker <laughs> to work out to you um, in advance of working those extended hours, notifying you of that need uh, and getting uh, pre-approval to work that time. You could, uh, you could impose a requirement that the worker document all of the hours being worked and regularly submit them. Uh, that way you can keep uh, tight rein on um, what's actually been uh, produced and what's being paid. So it's okay to expect that expectation of control. 
I mean, because to me, as you're saying it, I'm thinking I'm here in control and I'm thinking you're not allowed to control. But it's those very it's those very measures you take to protect the business and to protect you from, you know, a surprise claim under employment standards for overtime or holiday pay, what have you, that then lend to a finding of a more traditional relationship. It erodes the independent contract. Yeah, I'd say it's the exact opposite of control, actually, Pam. What you're doing is setting out the parameters for the relationship in advance, saying someone cannot go beyond that without your permission. You're only buying a certain service. You're not buying more service than you want or need. And you certainly see that kind of structuring in traditional independent contractor arrangements where you say, look, you've got to produce X bundle of goods or X bundle of services. These are are the parameters, this is the framework within which you have to produce. So, um, you know, in terms of controlling overtime, that's a solid tip for gig economy uh, principals and workers. And um, another thing, uh, just, just picking up on that line of thought, you will have some responsibility as the principal to make sure, and again, you're, you're creating the framework and the parameters to ensure these people are delivering the services or producing the goods in a safe way. You're discharging your occupational health and safety obligations to the extent they might apply. So you have to be sure that they're working in a safe vehicle, perhaps, if what they're doing is driving a vehicle as part of this uh, gig economy role. Um, if they're going to be producing work at a workstation somewhere, I think what you would be doing is making sure that that workspace is safe and appropriate. Now, again, you're striking a balance between not going too far down the line of uh, becoming an employer, but I do think you have those obligations and you should discharge them by creating the right framework. Yeah, I can't speak to all jurisdictions, but certainly in ours back home, in Manitoba, our workplace safety and health legislation is broad enough so it certainly covers more than simply employees. It would cover independent or dependent contractors as well. Same with Ontario. The definition of worker is very broad. So again, but you want to be careful. Balance is a great word. When you're trying to structure your business to be consistent with the principles of a gig economy outside of that traditional employment arena, that you are striking the balance between complying with your obligations under the Occupational Health and Safety Act and still respecting the autonomy and independence of another business and how it's executing its deliverables as that other business, i.e. the gig worker. I'll make this point as well. Just because you're satisfying the test in one form or for one legal body or administrative body doesn't mean you're going to be satisfying the test for all. So let, let me expand on that thought. You may be considered by a court to have a proper contractor arrangement as opposed to an employment relationship. You might, for tax purposes, satisfy the Canada Revenue Agency that you have an independent contractor versus an employee, but how an employment standards uh, adjudicator or a human rights adjudicator, or to pick up on Jeff's point, a workers' compensation adjudicator or decision maker um, views the matter may be quite different. And I think that's an important distinction to draw. Uh, you may be considered a, an employee in one form or before one body, but not in another form or before another body. And being that they're all, you know, law related, statute related, is there one that has a higher hierarchy that I want to hit these bells? And if I fall off down here, you know, to, you know, I'm trying to, you know, as an employer, I want to have that checklist of, 
I'm going to set up some gig workers. You mean as a business owner, not an employer necessarily. Uh, exactly. <laughs> business owner was my gig workers, not gig please. The big test in, in my experience anyway comes back to control. How much control does the does the entity have over the entity performing the service? If you're providing the tools, if you're telling the entity when to do it, how to do it, where to do it, if the entity has a has no chance of profit or risk of loss, it's more likely to be an employee. So the more you can get away from that, the better off you are if you don't want employees. That said, it's kind of a paradox because as an, as an entity requiring somebody else to provide services, you want control for some purposes. You want to make sure your brand is maintained. You want to make sure quality control is maintained. You don't want to be completely hands-off. You want something done in a, in a means acceptable to you, but you don't want to be so over top of it that you're an employer. So the challenge is finding the balance. And when you look at, when we talk about the undetonated landmines that a business might face and, and which, which organization or agency do they want to ensure they pass the test for? Jeff's point, the, all of the organizations use a similar framework. It's just how do they apply it? But if I'm an employer and I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of liability or I'm cognizant of the liability, I would say under our employment standards regimes, that's where you get the vacation pay exposure. That's where you get the statutory holiday pay exposure and potentially statutory termination pay, um, you know, minimum wage. And when we're seeing in Canada right now, there is a class action that's been filed by workers for Uber. And that's what they're coming at it for. They're coming from a vacation pay perspective, a statutory holiday pers pay perspective. So that could be a very large liability compared to some of the more notional liabilities that you might face under the Human Rights Code or compliance-driven pieces under the Occupational Health and Safety legislation. Shane is completely right, and it's an ongoing obligation you've got if it's an employee. If it's a human rights situation, it may come up or it may not come up, but certainly if it's a human rights, pardon me, if it's an employment situation, you've got the obligations under the Employment Standards legislation, which are broad-reaching and continuous and, and quite retroactive. Costly. Exactly. Right? So. I mean, in Ontario alone, you can go back seven or eight years, depending on the situation, for vacation pay liability. And if you have a workforce of, you know, a thousand people who have not received their minimum 4% or 6% to which they're entitled, that's an easy number to achieve through an audit of your, from the business, through an audit of what they've paid the contractors, right? So it's not a, um, it's not an insignificant exposure, which is why we're seeing in the class action realm. Yeah, I'm going to um, shift gears a little bit. Uh, I want to talk about um, how the courts have been approaching the, the analysis and, um, we, we've mentioned the, um, the word control a number of times. We've also, I think, uh, alluded to this idea of dependence on the principle. Um, I think an important factor um, for all the analyses in front of all the bodies in all the forms um, is the idea of exclusivity as well. How many hours per week is this individual working for that particular entity? And um, there's a very neat case out of uh, Shana's jurisdiction recently, uh, Ontario Court of Appeal decision in Thurston and Ontario Children's Lawyer. And um, that case is, is neat because it talks about how context sensitive and context dependent the analysis is, but it also talks about um, the idea of exclusivity and fleshes that out. And the court actually starts to attach some numbers to the idea of exclusivity. So if X percent of the time you're working for this entity, you're more likely to be an 
employee. And um, the number which pops up in the case is uh, uh, 50% of billings uh, attaching to one particular entity is more likely to give rise to that exclusivity notion or near exclusivity. So I just wanted to add that piece. Well, and that goes more to, and, and when you look at, I think the exclusivity is important because that that's what brings in the concept of economic dependency, right? And so if you are providing services primarily for one or two entities, and if you're Uber, you're probably happy that someone's also driving for Lyft, right? Because you dilute that exposure. But it's a good tip for employers. Sometimes the instinct is to be very prescriptive in what someone can do while they're providing services for you. They shall not provide services to a competitor. And this is exactly the type of enterprise where we say it's a good thing for them to have that diverse side. Yeah. That's interesting. It might actually open the door or invite businesses to be telling their people, look, you cannot work exclusively for us. And in fact, we want you to and demand you to, and we want information from you as to how much you're doing for others. But we still want first call in your services. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So you, you preface that in saying that, you know, advise this as a good tip for business owners to uh, consider. Uh, As we almost are running out of time, I'd like to go around and and advise on other tips that employers or business owners would be able to put forth. Sure, I I can kick that off. Um, This idea of um, having the worker um, work for other entities as well really underscores that point about confidentiality. Do you want those individuals working for your competitors and potentially taking your information and secrets to those other bodies? So there's one um, that we can put a put a flag on. The other thing we should think about is um, uh, privacy legislation. Can we require that individual to disclose what else they're doing outside of their time with us? How much of that um, gig workers uh, personal information can we collect? And if we are collecting it, what are we required to do? So um, you, you think about consent and uh, notification as to purpose to which the information is going to be put. In British Columbia, my jurisdiction, we've got a very robust regime around personal information protection. I know other Canadian jurisdictions have similar things. So there's a couple of things that pop to my mind. What about even monitoring behavior or things through technology? Well, and actually that was going to be my tip was to ensure that the tr- that you're still notwithstanding the risks of um, being found to have exerted more control by providing training. I think that an employer, uh, that business is positioning itself um, well if they ensure that their service providers are compliant with the human rights legislation, are compliant with the occupational health and safety legislation in Ontario and in BC. Services are captured under the, so it's not just employees who are protected um, under the human rights legislation. It's also service providers and anyone performing contracts. So having that training and those policies in place still, nonetheless, even though they're not your employees, it's a good tip for employers or business to mitigate the risk. The two tips I would have, sorry, would be one, look at your own circumstances and don't assume you should necessarily just have employees, just have contractors or some mix of the two. Figure out what your needs are and don't just default to something. So go to to a deep dive as to what your actual business operation requirements are, what your concerns are, and try and plan accordingly. Number two, unions. Unions are an interesting um, possibility no matter what your workplace consists of. Don't assume that simply because you have contractor 
uh, folks doing the work that they're not employees for purposes of labor relations legislation. And bear in mind that the balance of the Labor Relations Act may well apply to you, including unfair labor practices, including certification applications, including the like. I will just say this um, uh, to, to wrap up. Um, we uh, at each of our firms have uh, a good deal of experience dealing with the structuring of contractor relationships, employment relationships, and that nebulous middle ca category of the dependent worker. Um, so if there is any question at all, um, any one of us would be very happy to help, uh, as would any member of our um, firms this side of the border. James, thank you for making that offer. Uh, yes, the any of the contact information for our experts today uh, can be found on ela.law. You're welcome to visit that website. There's a tremendous amount of resources there. And um, certainly this topic of the gig economy has always been top of mind for business owners out there. And as the Employment Law Alliance trying to meet the needs of businesses and corporations out there, we will certainly be revisiting this topic. I want to thank all of you for being here with me today and for sharing your insights and thoughts on this hot topic and uh, to share with us how it impacts the workforce. Uh, I want to also thank our listeners for joining us today for another episode of Employment Matters. If you have a hot topic that you want to see covered here on Employment Matters, please reach out to me at pam at ela.law and we will take that topic into consideration for our future broadcast of Employment Matters.